Well, good morning again, Mission Church. You could turn that down a little bit. That would be helpful. Thank you. (laughs) If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is John. I serve Mission Church as the lead pastor, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, Our mission and our vision here at Mission Church is to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And we accomplish this as we pursue lives that love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. I'm honored and excited to be with you this morning, especially as we begin a new sermon series this morning through the book of Ephesians. And we've entitled this series, God's Plan for God's People. You see, God has a plan to use you and me in all of our brokenness, despite all of our weaknesses, to transform the world. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, I'd love for you to have one. In fact, we do have these CSB Scripture notebooks on the book of Ephesians at the table. Feel free to go ahead and grab one. It's, it's yours. It, it has the whole book of Ephesians and notes to take on the side. There's some pens back there on the table, I believe, and these notebooks. Feel free to grab one of those uh, even now. But Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If Ephesians is um, in the New Testament, right after Galatians, right before Philippians, and the way I remember that is Galatians eat pie. So E is Ephesians. Have you heard of that before? Now you have. Now you're going to think of that when you're turning to Ephesians. Now when you're there, Ephesians chapter 1, if you're available to, I'd love to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to begin this this new series in this book that many have called the treasure trove of the gospel that's overflowing with the good news that you've provided for us through your son, Jesus. And, and God, I pray that as we uh, spend some time in this book, Lord, that you'd soften our hearts even this morning as we just look at these first two verses, that you would remove the calluses from our hearts that have built up, whether it's due to unrepentant sin or maybe for some here it's disbelief. Lord, you're the only one that can move our hearts towards you. You're the one that gives the gift of faith, and I pray, Lord, that you would do that today. Would you stir our affections away from the things that are so distracting in our world and our culture, and would you stir our our affections for Jesus Christ this morning? Would you equip us to leave here today living on mission with the focus and the intentionality to lead others to you? We love you and we thank you. I pray, Lord, that as I preach this morning, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and beautiful in your sight. Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer, and we praise you this morning and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There was a report put out by the Los Angeles Times several years ago, and the story was about a man and a wife who had died in their 50s. And they were found dead in their apartment, and the autopsy report revealed that both the husband and the wife, they had died of malnutrition. Now, what was interesting about this report was that the police who had found their bodies, they began searching through the apartment for some sort of uh, understanding of what had happened. 
And as they searched the apartment, they found in the closet several paper bags full of cash. They had a total of $40,000 in random paper bags hidden throughout their closets. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems pretty foolish to me to die of malnutrition when you have $40,000 worth of cash just sitting in your closet. And what this story speaks to is an ignorance of how to use your resources. And in a similar way, the book of Ephesians is written to Christians who, like this couple who died of malnutrition, are walking through life dying of spiritual malnutrition when they have a spiritual feast right at their fingertips. You see, in the book of Ephesians, we find an endless resource. We find a treasure chest of riches that is just waiting to be tapped into. And it provides for us a spiritual bank account in which we never have to worry about overdrawing from. This past week, I had the opportunity to meet with about 25 to 30 other Las Vegas pastors. And, and we sat around tables for a good hour or, or, or so. And, and we began discussing the different difficulties each of us have been experiencing this past season, whether it's personally, but especially in our ministries. And afterwards, we spent time praying for one another, encouraging one another, pointing each other to the good news of the gospel. And the difficulties that these pastors were sharing, what they were experiencing, were immense, overwhelming. We prayed for medical issues. We prayed for church members who have been dealing with difficulties and complacency. And we prayed for failing children's ministries. And we prayed for endurance to be faithful in the midst of persecution. Some of these men were experiencing such challenges and difficulties that it would be understandable for them to throw in the towel, to quit or to go to some other different ministry opportunity in an easier location. But somehow, faith had granted these men the ability to face the reality and the immensity of their challenges. Somehow, they've been equipped to continue to serve the church with persistence, courage, and joy. And as I sat there, I was thinking, man, what brings these men such peace? What is the source of these pastors' strength? What is the source of their ability to face challenges greater than themselves and expectations that somehow, some way, God has a purpose in what they're doing and their efforts are not in vain? And brothers and sisters, as I sat there, I thought that I believe, I think that every Christian wants and needs to know the answer to that question. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're pursuing a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and leads others to Jesus, then you know what it feels like. You know what it, it is to face challenges that are greater than yourself. You know what it means to face shortages of resources and to wonder if God will supply what you feel that you need. You know what it's like to send your kids to a school or to work for a company that's heavily influenced by the sins of our culture. We also know that the challenges that we face are not just all around us, but they're within us as well. If you dare to flash the light into the dark recesses of your heart, you'll see the failures to overcome sin, persistent doubts, the failure to be faithful to do what God has called you to do. See, if we're honest, the challenges that are outside of us and the challenges that are within us can be overwhelming. They can cause us to desire to pack up, to run, to cry out to God, Lord, this is just too much. I can't do this anymore. Well, the first two verses of Ephesians helps us. 
in moments like these by pointing us to the ultimate source of our strength, the ultimate source of our identity and, and security and, and peace. And so let's take a look now at the first part of verse 1, for it's here that we see strength. Notice first the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he immediately identifies himself not only as the Apostle Paul, but of a, the, an Apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. That phrase is important, by God's will, if you underline that or make note of that there. But first, let's consider what an apostle is. Paul says, an apostle. And this word comes from the Greek word apostolos, meaning sent one, or, or a messenger sent by God. Apostle was the official title of the men that God uniquely chose to be the foundation of the church. They were the receivers, the teachers, the foundation of the church. They, they were the receivers, the, the teachers, the writers of God's final revelation, the New Testament. And the apostles' jobs were to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to pray, to, to work miracles, to lead and build others up in the church, and to write the Word of God. In other words, Paul, he's not flippantly using this word apostle. It's not just some title that he's using, and it's not just him who decided that that's his title, but it's by God's will that Paul became apostle. You see, no one made themselves an apostle like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be an apostle. And they don't just add it onto their resume. They don't go to some class or some conference in which they're taught on how to be an apostle. No, it was not Paul's academic training. It was not his leadership credentials that made him an apostle. Paul's apostleship was not due to his own goodwill, his good works, or his righteous and moral life, but rather he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by what? God's will. So besides the original 12 disciples and Matthias who replaces Judas in, the, in Acts, Paul was the only other apostle, which means if someone today carries the title of apostle or proclaims to have a new revelation from God, that's a red flag. And you should run away as far as you can from them and do not follow them. Now remember, Paul, who was previously called Saul, he was one time, at one time, violently opposed to Christianity. In fact, he had been a militant enemy of Christ. At one point, he was even an accessory to the murder of Christians. However, the crucified and risen Jesus struck down the rampaging Saul on the road to Damascus. He blinded him with a light. Jesus essentially kicked him off of his donkey and commanded him to stop persecuting him by way of him persecuting his body, the church. And Jesus' call resulted in Saul's radical conversion. Saul, the former enemy of Jesus, was now his spokesperson. Saul, who would now be called Paul, was God's chosen mouthpiece to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentile world. Gentile meaning everybody else except for the Jewish people. What a, what a transformation, right? And Paul's life reminds us that, that God could radically change anyone. Church, there is no one so far who can outrun God's grace. There's no one in who, who, where their location, God's grace, cannot apprehend them. 
There is no one beyond redemption, for here we have a man in Paul who might have formerly been compared to a terrorist now writing the New Testament. In fact, he, re- he writes a majority of the New Testament. And he does so not with his own authority, but the, the authority of God himself. As Paul writes here, it is God speaking through him. Can you imagine the kind of backlash Paul received for this? Imagine. I mean, what gave Paul the right to speak for God? Can you imagine maybe the self-doubt that Paul experienced at times, flashes of his past at the forefront of his mind, memories of holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death? I mean, what right did Paul have to speak for God? None. None right. (laughs) My English is not good in that. But he had no right at all. He had no right based on his own record. But remember, Paul was not an apostle based on his own record. But because of Christ's redemption, Jesus had corrected him, claimed him, and commissioned him. So Paul could at the same time claim later in his writing that he was the foremost sinner, the greatest sinner of all, and at the same time still speak for God because it wasn't Paul's will to do so, it was God's will. Brothers and sisters, God's will for your life is a comfort and a source of strength. This is what we can see from these few words. So when others who know about your past life, that know about your life before you met Christ, and when they look at you and ask, what right do you have to speak for God as you begin sharing with them your faith? You can proclaim to them that you don't have a right, but God has a plan and a purpose for you. You see, as a Christian, you have been called out from darkness into light by a power greater than any challenge, any obstacle that this world has to offer to you. You see, as a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus to be your Savior, if you have surrendered to Him as your Lord, then you have been also, like Paul, corrected, claimed, and commissioned. And where the world sees opposition, you see an opportunity to endure for the sake of the calling of Christ on your life, to be the light and to be the salt of the earth. Now Paul, as he writes this letter, he is under intense stress. He's under massive strain. For Paul writes to the Ephesians when he is in the city of Rome, and he's not just hanging out in Rome, it's not a vacation, he's not strolling through the streets, um, just viewing the sights, but rather he's under arrest. He's, he's under house arrest. And he's not just sitting in a house somewhere, but he's literally chained to a Roman soldier. In fact, it was during this time that he also wrote the letters of Colossians and Philemon, which speaks to the fact that despite Paul's circumstances that he was facing in that moment, the main thing that he was concerned about was not who he was chained to or his reality, but he was more concerned about the health of the churches. In other words, he was concerned not about his circumstance, but the mission that God had called him to. And he knew that his circumstance didn't determine that mission, but gave him more opportunity to live that out. And so in spite of his own circumstances, Paul was burdened for the church And he's writing from a place of love. He's writing from a place of desire for those who read this letter. He longs for us to experience God's best. More specifically, and we'll see this throughout our time together in this book, but he spends the first three chapters exploring the story of the gospel. It's the 
it's rich in theology. And then, after we have an understanding of the gospel, exploring the climax of history, exploring who Jesus is, and, and God's creation of a multi-ethnic community of Jesus followers called the church, after he spends the second half of this letter focusing on how to apply these truths. And friends, we cannot get that order out of order. I'll call it the divine order. Before we can apply it, we have to spend time understanding the gospel. This is extremely important. We can't begin what to do for God until we have spent time understanding what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. It's the indicatives and the imperatives. We can't get to the second. We have to understand the first. Otherwise, we're going to be spending just a long time, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do, into a place where we're we fail and we haven't understand the gospel or applied the gospel or received the gospel and we're just doing, doing, doing. And that's not what we're called to necessarily. We are called to have a relationship with Christ and have an understanding of the gospel and what God has done for us. Then we apply these truths to our lives. We can't get that backwards. Now, why is it important to know that Paul writes this letter from prison? Well, it's helpful to know this because uh, Paul, who was called and chosen by God to be an apostle... He, it's helpful to know that he's experiencing real hardship. It's helpful to know that he's experiencing pain and strain and opposition and challenges. And Paul knew that as an apostle, he spoke for God. That even in that moment of opposition, he knew the, the plan and purpose God had given to him. And knowing that fact filled him with courage. It filled him with purpose and assurance to live out his calling despite the challenges he was facing. In the same way, you and I also have been given the gift of God's Word. So when we read God's Word and memorize it and apply it to our lives faithfully, God's Word is also ours. And so like Paul, we too may experience opposition in our life, resistance, hardship. But with God's Word in hand, we can have the same assurance that Paul had that you and I, we do not depend upon our own wisdom or authority For God has spoken to us in His Word, and when we speak His Word, God speaks through us. Not a new revelation, but what He's already given to us in His Word. So if you're faithful to share your faith with a coworker, or maybe you're attempting to share your faith with a neighbor down the street or the Mormon missionary at your dinner table, when your testimony is centered on Scripture, God speaks through you, for you're not dependent upon your own words. You don't have to come up with something fancy. God has already given us the words in His Word. God's Word is here for us, and it's the truth, and it's our source of strength when we face challenges because of our limitations or our abilities or our challenges in life, our circumstances that we're facing. This all speaks to the fact that as Christians, the source of our strength and the source of our confidence is God's Word and God's will. This leads us back to verse 1. And the second thing that we see in our text, and that's the identity. And there's so much going on in just a few words here, but notice first the location of these saints. He says, "...to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus." A simple glance at this verse might not reveal much. In fact, we might read over it and not think twice. But we would would miss the intensity that, that is in just these few words. For the phrase would have shocked the ancient reader. 
It would be similar to saying to the faithful Christians living in North Korea. It's not just something you would expect. I'm reminded of the time I spent in Kansas City last year. After I landed and I was on the way to the hotel in in an Uber, which was my first time. That's an experience. It was weird. Anyways, the Uber driver's driving and he asks me where I'm from and what I did for a living. And so I told him, I said, I'm from Las Vegas. And he was so excited that before I could answer the second half of the question, he cut me off and he began to tell me of his recent trip here. (laughs) Oh man, did he tell me. He got so excited. He was giving me a complete rundown, detail by detail of the debauchery and just the good time that he thought he was having. And I sat and I listened and then finally he got to the point where he says, so what do you do? (laughs) Oh man. And I said, well, sir, uh, I'm a pastor of a, a, a church named Mission Church in Las Vegas, and, and crickets. It was <laughs> crickets, and you can tell his face, he was overwhelmed. He began thinking and searching and thinking and searching, and what to say next? And he's, he's like, I'm trapped in a car with this guy. I just told him all of my worst secrets. And uh, it was, there was silence for a good minute, and I could, I could tell you it was very awkward. Um, but finally, he, he came with something to say, and he, he looks at me in the, in the, you know, the rearview mirror, and he, he says, there's Christians in Las Vegas. <laughs> you see, Ephesus was a city much like ours and had a reputation much like our city has. And like you and I living in Las Vegas, the oppositions to Christians living in Ephesus were palpable. The degree of depravity and darkness was overwhelming. It was a city that was large. It had a massive population. It was a city that was known for the worldly pleasures it provided. The economy and the culture of the city were soaked in materialism, sleazy sensuality, eroticism, paganism, the occult, mysticism, idolatry. You see, there was a multitude of cults within the city of Ephesus that had captured the hearts of the, of the people. And not only that, but Roman rule at that time, uh, it, it dominated the ancient world. And the Roman emperor, he portrayed himself as being godlike as being a god. And so as a result, there was a cult that would worship the emperor as a god. They would, it was the syncretism between um, patriotism and religion, and they would worship this emperor as though he was god. And that cult flooded and defined the culture in the the city of Ephesus. So for, for Paul to address believers in Ephesus as faithful saints, this is a big deal. The word saint here is taken from Jewish origins, and it, and it means set apart, or it means holy ones. So for Paul to call anyone in Ephesus holy, or a saint, or set apart, it would have been unthinkable. It would have been offensive to Jewish readers at the time. For how could there be holy people in a place where politics, philosophy, economics, and cultish practices are all intertwined to capture an entire culture in pervasive sin? And friend, this isn't only a question for Paul's day, but it's a question that we face today as well. For we also face the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is all around us. And it's not only all around us, but it's within us. And like my Uber driver, we may wonder, are there any holy ones where we live? Even as we look in the mirror. And I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that thinks if this letter is written to faithful saints, well, then that immediately rules me out. 
Because saints are clearly a small, elite, set-apart group of people who have done really wonderful things and they have been declared holy by the church. And if I'm honest, faithfulness is not an adjective that I can in good conscience claim to describe myself. But according to the Bible, that's not what a saint is. According to the New Testament, all Christians, young, old, rich, poor, wise, simple, they're set apart by God for God's purposes and are all thereby proclaimed holy. And we are all given the the title of saint. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have been given this standing before God, holy. And it's not on account of your goodness or how amazing you are or how much you know or what you've done. It's on account of who Jesus is and how amazing He is and how holy He is and what He's done to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live and have chosen not to live and die the death that we do deserve because of God's righteous, just wrath on sin. And He rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And now all who call upon Him are not only rescued and given salvation in Christ Jesus, but were declared holy. And we can stand before God confident in that. For it was Him, Jesus, who knew no sin that became sin so that you and I can stand before God as righteous, the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. It's a gift that Christ has earned and it's a gift given to you on account of Christ's faithfulness and His righteousness. You see, Paul, he says, not only are you in Ephesus, but you're also somewhere else too. There's two locations in this verse that these faithful saints are in. And so underline Ephesus, but also underline in Christ. You have two homes. If you're a Christian, you have two homes. And he says to these Christians, number one, you're in Ephesus. And number two, you are in Christ Jesus. Two realities. You see, Paul addresses these Christians not on a basis, just simply on a basis of where they were physically, but also on the basis of what God has done in their hearts. These were saints who were hidden in Christ They were saints who were living as exiles under the shadow of pagan temples amidst moral decay, all while pursuing a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and is focused on leading others to Jesus. You see, they were focused on sharing the good news that saved them from the despair that those who lived amongst them were still enslaved to. You see, Paul was reminding these Christians in Ephesus, and he's reminding the Christians here today living in Las Vegas, he's reminding us of our gospel identity. You see, you may be here physically. You may hold a U.S. passport or a passport from some other place, but ultimately the believer's passport is in heaven because as we will see later in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that God has raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And friends, we can immediately make an application here and say, by the grace of God, having turned to Him in repentance and faith, we find ourselves both in Las Vegas and in Christ Jesus. And this understanding should radically impact how we live today. You should be Um, This should be a source of hope, a source of strength as we live in a world that is ultimately not our home. This place is not our home. We are living in exile, awaiting Jesus' return. 
But while we live here, we are present and we are called to live on mission, to pursue a life of holiness, to pursue a life that loves Jesus and lives like Jesus, and to be intentional about sharing the good news of the gospel with those around us. You may be surrounded by sin and brokenness, but if you are in Christ, you are secure. Not on the basis of your goodness, not on the basis of of how awesome you are, but on the basis of your faith that unites you to Christ. Mission Church, trouble may be all around you, temptation may be attacking you, but they will not overcome you. Sin will not prevail in you. It may prevail all around you, but it, not, it will not win the day. For you, by faith alone, through grace alone, but in Christ alone, you are God's holy, set-apart saints. This is who we are. This is our identity. I'm reminded of a novel I'm currently reading, and it's called Virgil Wander. It's by uh, an author. He's one of my favorite authors named Leif Inger. And the book opens with a main character, Virgil. And this guy, he's cruising down the street, just having a good time. His music is playing. He's cruising along at, at a medium altitude when his car flies off the road and it lands into the icy Lake Superior. Virgil, he survived the accident, but when he woke up, his language and his, and his memory were altered. And he emerged into a world, a small town in Minnesota, a world in which he's lived his whole life, and it was no longer familiar to him. And the story goes on about him trying to adapt to that. But as I was reading the open, opening pages of that book, I was reminded of one of the main reasons why Christians are ineffective in their faith. You see, as we live in exiles in a place that is not our home, we can get so distracted by the world around us, so distracted by sin and, and the culture in which we live, that we lose sight of who we truly are. And Paul immediately reminds us, he reminds the Christians living in Ephesus, he's reminding you and me this morning that we are faithful saints in Christ Jesus. That's your identity. It's true, tomorrow or even this afternoon, you may return to the routine of your, your daily life, whether at work or school or whatever that may be for you. But if you belong to Christ, you're not only in Las Vegas, you're not only a student or an employee or whatever may fill in the blank, but you're also a faithful saint in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that we are removed from the difficulties of life, Right? <laughs> That does not mean that we're removed from that. For we still live in a broken, sinful world. In fact, we're going to see this truth more clearly at the end of our time together in Ephesians. In chapter 6, we'll see that, that we haven't been removed from the battle, but we are assured that Christ, in His death and in His resurrection, He has conquered all of His and thereby all of our enemies. And we are promised that as we live in exile, awaiting His return, that He will be our security. In fact, Paul concludes his introduction here in verse 2, and, and we're going to finish up our time together. In a message of security and peace. He says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The security of the Gospel is this. It's in the fact that God grants peace through grace. 
And the peace that God grants, the peace that God is offering to you today is not something that lasts for a moment. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. It's a peace that is present in the life of the believer no matter what circumstances surround them. It's a peace that provides hope and security in the midst of life's storms. Now you might be thinking, how is that possible? And I'm glad that you're thinking that. It's possible because the peace of God is rooted not in your circumstance. It's a peace that's not rooted in your situations or your hardships. It's not rooted in you at all. It's a peace that is rooted in God. It's rooted in the grace of God. And the reason why this peace and grace can offer such security and hope in the life of a believer is because of what he says here. Because they are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, it's not limited by your effort. It's not limited by your strength. This short greeting is exploding with the good news of the gospel. That God provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. See, Paul proclaims God's grace to you and me. Not simply so that we can have hope. But so that we can also have peace. Because God's grace in the life of the believer speaks to the truth that God is not holding your sin against you. God has overcome the obstacles of the human heart and all the powers of evil. And when you have a correct understanding of the grace of God, the result is a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, in other words, when grace is understood as the compassionate and prevailing power of God on behalf of His people, peace is the result. And this peace is what enables Paul to continue in spite of his suffering, in spite of him being under house arrest and imprisoned. He remained confident. He was confident of God's love. He was confident of God's purposes in his life. And because he was at peace, Paul's ministry continued. You see, peace is not only the fruit of grace, but it's the power given to us so that we can live a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and leads others to Jesus. It's in this understanding of a grace and peace that empowers and provides security for you and for me. This peace, it keeps us from despair. It keeps us from complacency. It keeps us from giving up and throwing in the towel and and quitting. You see, we do not need to despair simply because we are not strong enough to overcome our situations or our challenges or our hardships. That's the point. You aren't strong enough, but we know one who is. And He has provided a way. You see, our weaknesses is not the end of the story. It's the very beginning of the story. You see, for peace is the evidence and the expression of God's power, for God is at work in those who recognize their weaknesses. That's a prerequisite to the peace that God is offering. Who recognize that they are not capable on their own, but they need a Savior. Friends, when we know God's grace, then we can experience His peace, no matter what challenges we may face. And as I close, consider... H.P. Spafford, who composed one of the church's greatest hymns as he sailed over the watery grave of his family who had shipwrecked, shipwrecked and drowned. As he sailed over that location, he began to pen these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, 
It is well with my soul. Mission Church, this is what God's offering to you this morning. A brand new greeting from another world. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that anyone who truly wants this, this strength, this security, this new identity, this peace and hope can have it through Jesus Christ simply by turning from your sin, confessing Him as Savior, removing the crown off your head and putting it back on His because He's the one who rightly should be wearing it and running to Him. If you do not know Christ, I invite you to do so this morning. If you have not experienced peace because priorities have gotten things out of order, I invite you to turn to Him. He says, I'm righteous and just not only to forgive you of your sin, but to give you security and the peace that has been offered here in these two verses. So turn to Christ this morning and let's pray. God, we love You and we thank You for Your good news. Even in these two words, Your Word is so rich and it gives us the ability to live a life that You've called us to. We thank You that this isn't something that we can muster up because if it were expected of us to do so, we would all be failing. But God, this is all based upon You and what You've done on our behalf. And not only that, but the fact that You're empowering us through the work of the Holy Spirit, the gift that You've given us. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that they would find the peace and security and identity that we have read about this morning. And Lord, as we go through this book over the next few months, that You would continue to grow us in the knowledge of, of You that we'd have a greater understanding of who you are and who we are and the good news that you've given to us through this book. Lord, we love you and we thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.